Take your Bible this morning and open it back to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, we've been in John uh, a few years now, and I probably like to say that slow is better than fast because we don't want to miss any of the truth that's bound up in this wonderful gospel, the Apostle John. As you know that we've been studying the last year or so, it's been the Passion Week of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said in John chapter 13, 1, that his hour had come. He said that his hour had come even previously in John chapter 12, 33, that hour would be that prolonged week, if you will, of the Passion Week. We find ourselves here in John chapter 18. It is Friday. It is the day of his death. Certainly, it would be early, early Friday morning. So that week that went by was that hour, and then literally we are in the last hours of this chapter. Chapter 18 and 19 surrounds the events of his arrest, plural, or excuse me, his arrest, his trials, plural. There's going to be a number of them, his crucifixion, his burial, and then we'll look on to the end of the gospel regarding his resurrection. It is a wonderful, wonderful section of scripture. I've been deeply impacted in my own heart, my own life this week. It pertains not only to his first informal trial, but as well as him stepping before Annas in what we can call an informal trial because Annas wasn't the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas, as the text will allow, but sandwiched in between that informal trial with Annas is the triple denial by the apostle Peter. In fact, we're going to look at both of those sections together, so I part from my normal practice to take a chunk at a time. We're actually going to look at John 18, verse 12, all the way through 27, because I really feel as though John wants us to see that together. He wants us to see 12 through 27 together, and I think you will see that. Now, we'll see the denial of the apostle Peter, and I think few saints in the Bible have fallen as deeply as Peter, at least as a saint. Remember, Peter was the one in John 13 when Jesus told him that he would be going to his cross, that he would suffer at the hands of evil men. Peter said to the Lord, Lord, why can't I follow you now? And he said in 1337, I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus questioned him, really, you will do that And Jesus told Peter, truly, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. John 13, 38. Though he so strongly asserted his desire to follow the Lord, I think out of a genuine love for the Lord, his passion and his pride and his presumptuousness, if you will, got in front of him and he will deny him in the very passage that we find ourselves this morning in. Now, let's look at the passage. Let me go ahead and read it for you. Then we'll come back and take its pieces. See if you can track the direction of John here. In 1812, you follow along. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. 
It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did the other disciples. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogue and in the temple where all the Jews came together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it. And at once the rooster crowed. Let us pray and just ask the Lord's blessing. Father, we are dependent upon you that we would see the Savior suffering on our behalf and give glory to him that where we struggle, that where we fall, that where we stumble, he never did. So Lord, would you open our eyes? Would you give us ears to hear that this word might penetrate our heart? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I think just from the reading of the scripture, there are very clearly by John two events happening at the same time. John, as he writes this under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, is just going from one scene to the next scene. In fact, in that switching back and forth, there are two events simultaneously taking place. He takes us from the trial to Annas, then to the denial of Peter. Then he goes back to the trial or the interrogation by Annas, and then he switches back to the denials of Peter. And what John is skillfully doing is he is placing side by side the trial with Annas and Peter's denial. It's almost as though if you can just picture this, and I I really believe, beloved, he wants you to see this as it's written. In other words, he, John, wants to draw you in. He wants you to switch from account to account, from scene to scene to scene. So if you can picture here, John may be in what I call a swivel chair. And he's in this swivel chair, and he's got a camera, a lens 
in his hands on that swivel chair. And he turns this way and he snapshots, if you will, scene one. Then he turns again and takes you to the denial, the first denial of Peter, snapshot again. Then he turns again on the chair and he takes you back to Annas. And then I'll swing, if you will, on that swivel chair a fourth time and show you the second and third denials of Peter. He's snapping these portraits from the trial with Annas, then turning back and forth, back and forth. And what our Lord is doing here and what John is doing is he's presenting Jesus' faithfulness, if you will, to drink the cup. Then he presents, if you will, Peter's faithless denial of the Savior. Our Lord's faithful. Peter is faithless. You have really side by side the greatest act of obedience to the Father's will, at least in 1810, to drink the cup. And then alongside of it, you have the greatest denial ever made possibly by a believer of all time, and that's Peter. And John, beloved, by the Spirit of God, by the authority of God, wants you to see that. He wants you to experience that. So though there's history in this, it's as though he picks up fresh pen and dabs it into the ink and the Spirit of God is putting it on parchment for us this day to see in that way. Jesus, beloved, you will see, will stand up to his executioners And he denies nothing. Peter, on the other hand, cowers before his accusers and denies everything. It's amazing. Back and forth, back and forth. In fact, whether this is a wordplay by the Spirit of God, I don't know. But two times, under interrogation, at least in the chapter, the passage last week, our Lord answers and he says, I am I am. Remember that last week? He said, ego, I me. In fact, in the translation, it says, I am he. And I told you last week that he is supplied. He actually just said, I am. Two times in verse, I think it is there in verse four and five. And then on the opposite, two times, Peter will answer with this, not ego, I me, but he answers in the Greek with ouk, a me. Literally, I am not. So while Jesus is telling who he is, I am he, Peter is saying, I am not him, verse 17 and 25. There's such a stark contrast between the faithful, determined Christ and the fickleness and the vacillation of Peter. And Jesus, of course, will shine brightly against the denials of Peter. And so you have the glory and power of Christ shining into our frailful, our, our, excuse me, our frailty even this morning, our human frailty. And John wants us to see that. And as dark and cowardly as Peter's sin is, our Lord will wonderfully restore this man at the end of this gospel to great usefulness in his, in his kingdom. And certainly it gives us hope even today that we have such a wonderful Savior. Now, he's going to show that, but the other thing that he's going to do here, and I said it last week, is far from being, if you will, a pawn at the hands of evil men, our Lord is sovereign over the whole thing. Look at verse 4 again. Jesus, there in verse 4 of 18, knowing that 
that all that would happen to him came forward and said, whom do you seek? He knew everything that was going to take place. In fact, John's supreme aim, even in this chapter, is to show our Lord's mastery over the entire event. He's showing, if you will, his sovereignty over all things. He's showing you the sovereign determination of Christ that when maybe a band of a thousand men came to find him in Gethsemane, in the midst of that olive grove, that far from hiding, far from running, it says that he came forward and he said, I am he. And so there was determination. There was a sovereign dominion there. When he gave the answer the second time, I am, they all fell down. You know, it's interesting to me. Do you ever read that portion? They all fell down. We think as many as possibly a thousand people came in that Roman cohort to get him. And when he responded that second time, I am he, they all fell down. And the text doesn't say anything beyond that. They must have all just got back up and carried on with their business. Such is the darkness that closes the minds of the unbelievers to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he told us there last week that he would go to his death sovereignly, that he would drink that cup. So beloved, listen, as John sits on this swivel chair, he takes these pictures of four scenes of Christ's arrest and Peter's denial that reveals God's control over all the events, namely that he's sovereign. Let's look at those four scenes together. The first scene is his trial where Jesus is taken to Annas. Let's pick up the, t- the text in verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And so they come that night, it's got to be early, early Friday morning. He had left Thursday night, he went through Jerusalem, you remember, he makes his way down through the Kidron Valley, he makes his way back up to Gethsemane, and it would be there, John doesn't include it, that he makes that great prayer where he sweat, if you will, great drops of blood. But they finally come and they, they arrest him here. And they have a goal on their mind. They want to execute him. They're not looking for a fair trial, as you will see in the weeks to come. They are looking to execute him, but they could not execute him on the Sabbath day. It's Friday morning. Sabbath is coming Friday at sundown. And so they arrest him here, and there was little time for him to be tried and put to death at sundown on the same day. Now, I don't know if John means it this way, but to me, it's like, wow, that's irony there. They came and arrested Jesus, and they bound him. They bound him. He, they did literally bind him. It was probably their action that they took with every prisoner, but it seems unbelievable that they would bound together, if you will, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the very one who came to set you free, the very one who delivers you from your chains, the very one who delivers you from bondage, the very one who spoke the world into existence, the very one who said, let there be light, and there was light, and the very one who created the world, the very one who who gives you life is now bound, if you will, at the hands of these evil men. 
It's an unbelievable thought. The very one who frees us from our sin is bound. But if you look at the text there, John gets a little specific there. He talks about the band of soldiers. We mentioned that last week. A Roman cohort often was a thousand soldiers. Sometimes they would dispatch, dispatch them 600. And it says a band of soldiers and their captain or literally their commander. It literally meant in the Greek the commander of a thousand And so they arrested Jesus along with the Jewish officers. At this point, John doesn't tell us. The other gospels writers do, though. They they tell us. As they bound Christ, as they arrested Christ, all the other disciples had what? They fled. They scattered, actually, to fulfill the scripture. And so they flee at this point. You say, where did they take Jesus at this point? Look at the next text in verse 13. They first led him to Annas. And it says, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. They take him to Annas. Now, Annas had no formal role at this point. If you want to know who Annas is, he is the former high priest. It becomes clear right there in the text. He was the father-in-law of a man by the name of Caius, Caiaphas. And so he's the former high priest. He's the one we'll focus on in verses 12 through 14 as well as 19 through 24, okay? Now, I think they're doing this to quickly put this together to buy time for the Jewish Sanhedrin, if you will, to gather themselves in the middle of the night for a mock trial. Annas was removed, we know, from the office of high priest by the Romans in A.D. 15, So he was no longer functioning in that role. His son-in-law, as the text says, held that priesthood. He held the priesthood from A.D. 18 through A.D. 36 did Caiaphas. That's why, look at verse 13 at the last phrase. It says, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. You say, why the back and forth between Annas and Caiaphas? Because many Jewish people still considered Annas the patriarch of the high priestly family. He was that, actually. In fact, if you asked a Jewish person at this time, they would say, oh, it's Caiaphas, but the real high priest, the one that's really identified by us, would be Annas. In fact, under Mosaic law, the Jews held that the high priest who was appointed would be appointed for life. And so we might say it this way as you come into this text, and that's all I'll say, is that Annas is the emeritus high priest, and Caiaphas is the reigning high priest, but Annas is the one who held the power. So as they put their mock trial together, they send them first to this guy, Annas. Maybe the Jewish people would have thought, hey, what does Annas really think? What the Romans did is they would remove these men from the, the place of high priest. They didn't want one man to get into con- in control of a very formal role, both for the Jewish nation and Roman law. So they would switch these men out. What's interesting is this family was in charge. He had five sons, and as best I could see, four of them served after Annas, This one was married, obviously, to his daughter, and he was the son-in-law of Caiaphas. Now, look what it says, though, in verse 14. Caiaphas was priest that year, but it was Caiaphas 
who, ad, who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And he said that. You say, well, where did he say that? Look back at John 11. Do you remember that? Let me just show it to you, to your eyes. In John chapter 11, there's a very moving text there. And it was under the, the basis of the plot to kill Jesus. They were trying to kill him. And it says here in 45 of chapter 11, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. And some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. And John adds this. He did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. What a, what a text. Come back to John 18. Caiaphas obviously made that statement that someone would be executed and he had no idea what he was doing, but Caiaphas was plotting Christ's death for a while. And without knowing it, the language speaks of his substitutionary death on our behalf. And so God sovereignly takes this statement and he fulfills prophecy given by Caiaphas for his own glory. Such irony unfolds in the sovereign plan of God. So here's John, he's on the swivel chair. He takes that picture. Jesus is before Annas, and they remember that statement. But we come to scene chapter, excuse me, scene number two. It's scene number two, and it's Peter's first denial. Look at it in verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did the other disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside of the door, so the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who had kept watch at the door, and they brought Peter in, and the servant girl at the door said to him, you are also not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. This comes here, the chair, the picture, the portrait, to this second scene, it's Peter's first denial. Now, he mentions there the other disciple. And uh, there's some question much written there, who is this other disciple? Who do you think the other disciple is? I think it's very common, and there's much weight to that, that the other disciple is none other than the writer of this gospel, the Apostle John. You know, he never identifies himself in this entire gospel as such. In fact, the only way that he refers to himself is he said, the other disciple whom Jesus, what? Loved. And so we just don't really know who this other disciple is, but I think it's best to say that it's the Apostle John. In fact, in John chapter 20, he's referred to as the other disciple, and we know it there to be John. But here, Peter is let in through this other disciple's relationship, if you will, to the high priest. And again, all the disciples I had mentioned fled. You say, well, Scott, what 
What happened here? Well, we just know that back in the garden, Peter had taken out his sword and had cut off the ear of Malchus. Jesus miraculously put his ear back on and healed it. It was sometime in that time framework there that all the disciples fled. The, the, the other 11 fled, but, but somehow we come back to the text as they bind the Lord Jesus Christ and they ship him off to Annas Two of the disciples must circle back. It would be the other disciple, and it would be Peter. Now, there's still nine others out there, but these two somehow, maybe if it's a group of 600 to 1,000, they're making their way through Gethsemane, back up that ravine into the city of Jerusalem to try Jesus. And so they're following. One context of the gospel says that Peter was following at a distance. And so they come to this courtyard in this setting. It's not the temple. And a girl there is, is at this courtyard. She is at the door. She keeps watch at the door. So it's a woman. And so we know that it wasn't at the temple. Women wouldn't serve in that position. But she's a servant girl who had some kind of responsibility. And she brought John in. And then when John, who was known to the high priest, you say, how was he known to the high priest? Well, we just don't know. And some people say, well, gosh, how, how could a fisherman be known to a high priest? And I don't think that at all. I think John, from other texts, could have been a wealthy fisherman. It says that he had hired hands that worked in his boat for him. So that though he was a fisherman, he might have deployed, if you will, you know, kind of a small arsenal of boats behind him in his business. And here it, he was known to the high priest. So they take Jesus into this courtyard. John gets in. Peter's waiting. John comes back, the other disciple, to the high priest and says, listen, you need to let this one in. You need to bring this one in. And so he comes into the courtyard. Look at verse 17 again. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of his, this man's disciples, are you? Expecting a negative answer, if you will, in the language. And he said, I am not. It's amazing, isn't it? There's his first denial. Self-preservation. The very one who just said a few chapters earlier that he would die with Jesus Christ, now denies him, and his descent follows. Now, John wants you to see where they were. Look at verse 18. Now, the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. And then there's this eerie phrase. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Frightening. It's a very cold night. Now, what's interesting about that, whether that means to be a clue or not, it's definitely illegal what they're doing. You can't have a Jewish trial in the middle of the night. But that is exactly what they're doing. They've got a fire going, if you will, verse 18. It's very cold. It's late at night. They are standing, if you will, and warming themselves by the fire. They're trying to expedite this trial, this mock trial. They're trying to expedite his death. And what's eerie here is that just as Judas in the previous passage was standing behind the Roman cohort, if you will, here is now Peter standing behind, 
if you will, these people who are warming themselves ready to see the Lord Jesus Christ be executed. It just reminded me even this morning of Psalm 1, do not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of what? Sinners. This man went from bravado, if you will. This man made the greatest statements maybe in all of the New Testament apart from Christ. He's the one who said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And here he is in the face of one woman who says, are you with them? And he clearly denies it. Unbelievable. In fact, let me see if I could add some color to this first denial. Don't have to, but just a little bit. Mark 14, 67 says, Seeing Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with the Nazarenes. And, and I just point that out to you as it comes up. It's almost like a double take right here. And seen one, one way, Peter warming himself, she looked at him, and the thought in the language there is she looked at him closely. Here was this man who waited at the gate. Here was this man brought in incognito. Here was this man whose sin was ever before them, and she sees him and looks at him and looks at him closely. In fact, Luke tells us in his gospel in 2256 that Peter's face was illuminated, if you will, by the light, by the, by the fire at night. In other words, that charcoal fire brought a light to it and he sat in the light and he was detected. And so, beloved, all I could say, and for him or for us, when you go into those type of places, he was in shark-infested waters. And you know what he does? He panics in Mark 14, 68, just like in this text, he denied it. But he said this, and I want you to see this. He said, I neither know nor understand what you mean. In other words, I don't even have a clue what you're talking about. The guy who said, though all will fall away, I'll never fall away, now says in the other gospel, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And beloved, maybe this is why Jesus would say to us in Mark 14, 38, watch and pray so that you, so that I do not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the what? The flesh is what? Weak. This is a, a testimony to us. This is a word to us. Watch and pray so that you may not enter into temptation. And of course, in that context, he came back after sweating great drops of blood in his prayer to his father. He came back to find them sleeping. So the boldness, if you will, of the servant girl reduced Peter to a coward. And though Peter had for years intense discipleship and witnessed hundreds of miracles, he actually denies Christ here. And though he strongly boasted about his loyalty, he capitulates here to perjury. And so too with us when pride and prayerlessness enter in. I think it, just as I was studying this week, Peter seemed like he was like Elijah. Remember that passage in the Old Testament where Elijah bravely fought 850 prophets of Baal. But then he absolutely flopped in fear over what Jezebel might do to him. And all it takes for Peter, that one cold night, 
is this woman, and he denies the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, Peter is a living illustration, and I give it to you this morning in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he, what? Fall. This is a word to you. This is a word to me. This is a word to you as high school students. This is a word to you, fathers and mothers, that when you think you stand, take heed, singles, lest you fall. And so in the courtyard, the hero shrivels down into a coward. His selfish instincts prevailed and his boldness just evaporated. His boasting made him vulnerable and it led to his downfall. And beloved, all of you say, well, what happened at this point? Well, John doesn't tell us, but as the, as the heat gets hot in the kitchen, Peter seeks a little relief. Mark 14, 68, 68 he went out into the gateway. The guy's looking for the door. Now, now you might say, why, why did he deny him? I mean, I've asked that this week. And, and some of you might say, well, he denied him because Jesus sovereignly told him that before the night's over, you will deny me three times. Before the night is over and before the cock crows, you will have denied me three times. I, yes, but, but maybe there's more. And you say, are you defending Peter? No, I'm not defending Peter. But I will tell you this, there's nine other guys AWOL, Right? They're AWOL. They're not there. They just scattered and fled in the garden. But then somehow, John and Peter, they begin to make their way back. Then Peter hangs at the door. John goes into the courtyard. She gets the high priest to give permission for the girl to bring him in. And he, he comes in and uh, I don't know why he denied the Lord. Maybe the police, have you ever thought about this? Have an all points bulletin out for the guy. Go find the ear slasher. I mean, maybe Jesus obviously put his ear back on, but maybe that was a crime, and as soon as that happened and he put the ear on, they fled, and so maybe he's suffering under that. Maybe he feels like he's a fugitive on the run. But beloved, I have to be fair with you. He loved Christ. He loved Christ. He would die for him eventually, but here he loses it. He compromises his faith. He, he abandons his faith. He himself goes AWOL. I am not. I don't even know what you're talking about. And Peter is like a poor fly, as one man said, caught in the spider's web. But sadly, the change of scenery does not mean a change of heart. Because the swivel chair turns again to the third scene the story cuts back from his first denial to the interrogation before Annas. And this is dramatic. Look at the text. And I want to say here, meanwhile, because John wants you to see this, of what the Lord did for you. It says the high priest, verse 19, then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. What, why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I have said to them. They know what I've said. And so here, this is just, he, he's getting, it's an informal interrogation because Annas at this point doesn't 
Though in the minds of the Jews, he's the patriarchal high priest. In the minds of the Romans, Caiaphas, he's not before Caiaphas here. And so here, they ask him about his disciples, and they ask him about his doctrine. Now, what's interesting there is that is, I would tell you, completely illegal. The proper Jewish procedure was to interrogate the witnesses, not the defendants. They're out of order here. In other words, if you looked up the annals of Jewish law, they interrogate the witnesses, not the defendant. In fact, beloved, the witnesses... Uh, the witness for the defendant were heard before witness against him. And so here, this is just illegal. And Jesus basically said to them, I said to all. I didn't say one thing publicly. I didn't say another thing privately. Oh, yes, he explained truth to the disciples privately. But this was not a duplicitous message with a secret agenda. He basically says, ask them. They know what I said. So look at the text again in verse 22. When Jesus said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer a high priest? And Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong, but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? I think it's interesting that Jesus doesn't back down here legally. He just says, if what I've done or taught is illegal, then tell me, bring a witness against me. But if not, why the assault? And if you can just imagine there in that swivel chair at that third scene, that soldier just with open hand, and in the language, smacked him. It wasn't like just a curt pop on the cheek. The thought is with open hand, just slapped him hard. Now, John doesn't say any more than that, other than I can tell you this, that they, in Matthew's gospel, spit in his face, in the face of God. And it says in Matthew 26, they struck him with their fist. And the Bible says in Matthew 26 that other people slapped him. And so though you get a picture of one with a really hard slap, other people of that leadership are slapping him and spitting in his face and striking him with their fist. So you say, well, what happens? Look at 24. Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. He sends him off, if you will, to his son-in-law. Say, well, what takes place? You know, the swivel chair goes again. Scene number four, picture number four, and the fourth scene is Peter's second and third denial. We'll take them together, okay? Look at verse 25. It's very, very graphic. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. Isn't that interesting? Go back to 18. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Now front forward to verse 25. Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. I just think John wants us to see it all together, don't you? It's a big chunk of scripture, but he wants you to see it. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, verse 25, are you? And he denied it. And he said, I am not. And here in another gospel, he, though he said, I will never deny you, is repeatedly 
denying this accusation. And so we go from the first denial to this second denial, and he's repeatedly denying this accusation. In fact, Luke, if you want it, in 22.58, Peter says, Man, I am not. So it's not just under his breath, I am not. Man, I am not. And then it goes beyond that in Matthew's gospel. It, it says there that Peter denied him, and it uses this phrase, with an oath. And an oath was given in the presence of God. And what Peter is saying is, God is my witness. I don't know the man. In other words, he doesn't just deny him. He denies him in Matthew with an oath. And he says, God, I'd be like you saying, Do we? it's probably not a good statement, but I swear to God. Or you used to say when you were little, if you wanted to make sure someone was telling the truth, I swear to God and I put my hand on the, the Bible. Peter says here, God is my witness. I don't know the man. And it's almost as though John is saying to us in this gospel, two down, one to go, and he's counting. He who confessed, I will never deny you is on the verge, beloved, of a three-peat. You say, well, what happened? Well, the next verse, verse 26, one of the servants, this just God's sovereign of the high priest, wouldn't you know, a relative of the man, that would have been Malchus, whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Wow, did I not see you? I mean, isn't, I used to tell my kids that. Listen, there will come a day where you can't be in front of me. Seven of them. And I'd get them right there. There will come a day when it won't be me and mom. There will come a day when you're 11 and you're 12 and you're 13. And you will need to not answer to me as your father. You will need to answer before God because we've raised you all your life to be accountable. And, and, and we, we taught them that. And so, I, I, because I used to tell them, listen, if you try to do something in secret, be sure, Proverbs, it's a good verse, your sin will what? Find you out. It's gonna hunt you down. It's gonna come after you. And so you're better to live in openness before the Lord. And it just so happened that in that courtyard, in that fire, there was a relative of Malchus. And he looks at Peter and he says, didn't I? I was there with, my, with Malchus. Didn't I see you there with him? And again, you can see it there in verse 27. Peter denied it. Wow. Like an undercover detective whose cover is blown. Peter was about to be revealed, and he is being cornered, if you will, by a pack of hyenas. And they are after him. I remember being in Africa, and I went on a safari, and there were many things that I saw, many things on that uh, safari. But the thing that was most frightening to me was the hyenas. And I was at a closed quarter where it wasn't an open deal and they were 
throwing slabs of meat over the fence to the hyenas, and the hyenas were catching the slab of meat in the air and just as almost like a pack of hyenas. And if you've ever seen a real hyena, I mean, they're frightening. Their paws are humongous. Their claws are humongous. Their teeth are fang-like. And I just, when I saw that, I just kept saying, Mufasa. I mean, I was just, it was frightening. And I'm thinking Peter's like kind of slipping out. He's slipping in the back. He's slipping in the dark. And yet the girl sees him. She does a double take on him. And now this relative comes. And it's almost like a pack of hyenas is descending on him. And Peter becomes unglued at that point. Now you can't see it here. What does he say? He's, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter, verse 27, again denied him. Now listen, let's let John's text stand. He just, he wants you to, he wants you to see something greater but he becomes unglued. You say, how do you know, Scott? Well, 1471 of Mark says this. He began to call down curses. And he swore to them, I don't know. And then just, it's just even hard for me to say, I don't know this man. In other words, he didn't even want to call the Lord by his name and he cursed, it's very strong. I don't need to tell you that. Pronouncing a curse upon oneself at the hand of God is if you were lying, you would be in big trouble. In fact, what he's actually saying here, God, strike me dead if I'm lying. And then you say, well, what happened? Look at the end of 27. And at once a rooster, what? Crowed. Wow. In fact, don't have to show you this, but to me it's interesting. Luke's gospel puts it this way in 2260. While Peter was speaking, while he's in the process of his third denial, the rooster crows. And the anguish of his heart, beloved, it crushed him. It crushed the Savior even more. You say, what time is it? What time does a rooster crow? Well, sometimes they crow on Mark, but it's probably somewhere right now between 3 and 5 a.m. And God sovereignly causes the rooster to crow just as Jesus predicted. The accuracy of this prophecy is amazing. Beloved, he's not the victim at the hands of evil men. He comes out to them and says, whom do you seek? I am he. He's not running from them. He's ready to drink the cup. He's not hiding in the garden. He's not running in the garden. Remember when I said last week, he could call on a legion of angels and they could come and put all those people out of their midst. But there's just one more thing that's interesting to me. Luke 22. You say, well, he's denying him. Where is he? In the courtyard. You say, well, where's Jesus? Evidently, he's also in the courtyard bound. Does this text come up? There it is. I don't know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking... The rooster crowed. And it's this, beloved. 
And the Lord turned. I just can't imagine that. And he looked at Peter. Their eyes must have met. He was close enough. At least he was in there. But he denied him and he looked at Peter. And isn't this touching? Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. How he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Their eyes met. Beloved, what a moment. John wants you to see it. Put yourself there. The Lord Jesus Christ's hands are bound. His face is covered in spit. His face is bruised. It's bleeding. They were striking him with their fist in the other gospels. And then at that moment of all moments, a penetrating look is extended to Peter. And I certainly filled with pain by the Lord Jesus Christ, but certainly eyes of pardon as well. So what, what happened to Peter at this moment? Well, Luke doesn't tell you, John doesn't tell you, but I can tell you Mark does. It says in 1472, he broke down there at the end and he wept. Hard to see it right there, but he repeatedly wept. The Lord's look broke his heart. It was his look that broke his heart. It was, if I could make this application to you, the Savior's gaze that he remembered the, war, the words to him and he repented. It was seeing the Savior, if you will, beloved, suffering on behalf of his own that enabled Peter to see his sin for what it really is before a holy God. So, beloved, as John sits on his swivel chair, you know, just one, two, three, four scenes, what does it reveal? It reveals our Lord's sovereignty over every detail. Beloved, he was in perfect control. But if you just step back just for a moment, would you think on this level? The Jewish leadership condemned him. Right here. Judas betrayed him. The Romans arrested him. And Peter denied him. And I just want you to know, he's all alone. He's all alone. There's nobody standing with him at, at this point. They've all scattered. John is not in the picture here, though there. Peter had denied him, and he's all alone. And listen, I just want to say to you, if, if you're all alone, he, he knows. He sees. He gets that. And John, beloved, wants you to see the difference between our Lord's fearless courage to drink the cup and Peter's fickle denial. Jesus, as I said, is not at the hands of wicked men. He voluntarily lays down his life for you to die. He voluntarily is, if you will, by his own power, is raised for you. He is there by choice. He is there by determination. He is there, beloved, for you and for me. He was faithful to the very end. And I think John wants to say here that Jesus shines brightly against the denials of Peter. And some of you have maybe felt like you've outsinned God. And I'm telling you, no, he's calling for you this morning. 
He's asking you to come back to him. It's, and in here, it's not the harshness that brought Peter back. It was the Savior's gaze that brought him back. It was then that he repented. And listen, I just would say this. Praise God, the story doesn't end here. It would probably be wrong if I ended it. Peter's tears, unlike Judas, were the tears of true sorrow. They were the tears of true repentance to Christ. And the Lord made good his promise that Peter's faith would not fail. And after appearing to Peter, remember, after his resurrection, Jesus three times questioned Peter about his love for him, just as Peter had three times denied that love. And just as three times he denied his love for Christ, Peter then affirmed that love for Jesus Christ three times, John 21. One for every denial. The Lord restores Peter to great usefulness in God's kingdom in the book of Acts. And listen, all I can tell you is if you're in the hearing of the word of God, you're a fortunate man this morning. You're a fortunate woman this morning. Because what I'm trying to encourage you, if some of you think I've outsend God, I don't even know if I'm one of the elect. And I want to tell you that God's so sovereign that he even took the denials of Peter and then turned in him sorrow and repentance and used him as one of the greatest servants ever in the history of the Christian church. Isn't that encouraging? Because you think, ah, I've just done too much, I've seen too much, I've sinned too much. But Peter was restored, whereas Judas wasn't. He went out and killed himself. You say, how did it end for Peter? Well, I think you know how it ended. But I want to share one story with you. Because tradition tells us, and all the traditions, all the histories say the same thing. It's not chapter and verse. But it tells us that Peter would be later, you know this, crucified as Christ has predicted that he would be. But before he was crucified, you think, well, I know he was crucified upside down because God worked such humility into his heart, beloved, that he thought, I'm so unworthy, I can't be crucified like Christ. So he said, turn it upside down and crucify me upside down. But before that happened, I think you, I don't know if you know this, he was forced to watch the crucifixion of his wife. And it was said that during his wife's crucifixion that he stood at the foot of her cross continuously encouraging her with the words, remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. And after she died, he himself was crucified but was So I just mentioned crucified upside down at his own request because he said he was not worthy to die as his own Lord. Listen, beloved, there's wonderful, wonderful hope here. And Jesus shines brighter than all of our sin. Amen? Didn't we just sing about that today? Listen, if it ever gets to the point where you think you've got this thing wired and you come in, that's never where the Lord wants us. The Lord wants us to come in every Sunday brokenhearted, if you will, humble before him, hands open, pleading for a word to stay faithful. Listen, he restored Peter to great usefulness, and he can do that in your life as well.